Welcome to World Changes, a podcast exploring the trends making an enduring mark on our world of work and how business leaders, HR teams and internal communicators can stay one step ahead. Whether it's driven by the business case or the moral case, neurodivergent people are finally beginning to be valued by the mainstream, as several high-profile corporate announcements in 2021 show. But to make sure this isn't just a token moment, we need to disrupt hiring policies and change mindsets for the long term. Consultant Hester Lunnigan chose this theme as her world changer for our 2022 report. Later in this episode, we chat with Anthony Friel, who sits on the board of Neurodiversity in Business as Chief Community Officer. He's also a senior consultant at Deloitte, bringing his business expertise and insights to the charity. But before that, Hester and I got together with our DNI champion, Russ Norton, to explore some beautiful minds. Russ, Hester, welcome. Thank you for joining me on World Changes. Hello. 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 Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. So, Hester, I mean, this is your topic. What inspired you to write about this? So, I am really passionate about understanding and supporting and opening up conversations on neurodiversity and neurodivergence. One of the most recent interesting not debates but conversations I've been having is around actually the terminology Um, and I know we refer to neurodiversity and neurodivergence sometimes interchangeably I'm not necessarily sure there's a right answer but I tend to refer to an individual who is neurodivergent as neurodivergent and then the, I guess, more conceptually and more collectively, the idea of neurodiversity. So that's just to call that one out. So, yeah, I'm really passionate about neurodiversity, I think, both from a professional perspective, but also from a personal perspective. In this role, we always have our ear to the ground, understanding what's going on within businesses and what initiatives and what conversations are really starting to surface and getting to the bottom of those to try and help drive the change that there needs to be within business. And I think one of the things that we have started to really see over the last few years is more conversation and more nuance around conversations around neurodiversity. Obviously, well, not obviously, but we've seen a lot more conversation around things like mental health and general diversity and inclusion, which I'm sure Russ will get to at some point over the last five, 10 years even. And it feels like neurodiversity really is the the next conversation, the next stigma that people have started approaching. People have started feeling more confident to ask questions around. So, I guess seeing seeing that conversation start to develop has been brilliant and it's something that, that I've noticed and that others have noticed and it definitely felt like the right time to start surfacing that. Also, from a personal perspective, it's something that hugely resonates with me. So currently in the UK, I think one in seven people are neurodivergent. So whether you know it or not, chances are you don't work with one person who's neurodivergent, but you work with loads of people who are neurodivergent. And as I said, it's something that really is close to me. I, over the last few years, have really come to understand myself better and understand that the way that I think is slightly different to the way that people assume I maybe should think. And being able to be part of conversations on neurodiversity has been a huge 
step change in the way that I communicate, the way that I do my job, but also with the way that I live. And having gone through that process myself and then seeing this opportunity um, to actually evolve the conversation, come up more broadly within the workplace, it really just felt like the moment to start finding ways to talk more about it and finding ways maybe to help other people across the country and across the world get to know themselves better and feel more open and feel more able to be authentic. Thank you for sharing um, a little nudge into your own personal life there Hester I know that's not easy and hopefully it's a safe enough space that you can so thank you and um, I couldn't agree with you more Um, I'm certainly party to a lot of conversations on neurodiversity but Russ I'm really interested because in your field of expertise as diversity and inclusion professional I feel like you must be hearing this too right? Yeah and it's it's really interesting I've learned masses from Hester actually and I'm really grateful that Hester has brought this conversation to to the agenda I think it's really interesting also Hester that you mentioned how previously neurodiversity was sort of lumped in with mental health and actually the two don't belong together at all. They are completely different um, themes and they raise completely different um, questions and and needs for support in the workplace. So I think it's really right to look at it uh, as as two distinct topics. I think the other thing that I've heard and I've observed is a certain level of like positive discrimination towards neurodivergent people in that you know, there's some really flippant comments around a la, oh, um, autistic people are great. They're really good at coding, for example. We need to we need to hire more autistic people because that will help fill our tech roles. And actually, that that's just a really negative assumption and, and isn't the solution to any business challenge anyway and, and only reinforces misconceptions uh, about people. So I think the time is definitely right for more dialogue, more conversation and greater understanding. Mm -hmm. It's very simplistic, that approach, isn't it? And uh, whilst you can certainly see that some people have different skills and super strengths, you know, getting in that, in inverted commas, talent um, for that reason actually doesn't feel that comfortable at all. Not not at all. And and that's not good for those people. And it's not good for those organisations. That's not a long term strategy by any means. I think the other really interesting point that Hester raises is around the, the well, it is a spectrum. Everything in spe- is a spectrum. Sexuality is a spectrum. Gender is a spectrum. Neurodiversity is a spectrum. And uh, everyone experiences this to different extents. And to some people who are further along the spectrum, it's much more important and it has a greater impact on their lives. But we can all understand how our own brains work. And Hester, again, what I what I love from what you've shared with me is around how understanding neurodiversity has helped you make sense of how you navigate the world. And I've really noticed you becoming more confident and uh, almost embracing it as part of your identity. And again, I'm, I'm grateful for you for, for sharing that with me because I've learned masses from you already. Thanks, Russ. Yeah, I think one of, I mean, there's, there's so much that I could respond to that with. I think one of, the, one of the really interesting things that I'll touch on is neurodiversity, such a huge part of thinking differently to how society has decided we maybe should think that comes hand in hand with communication 
And when you've you've talked about mental health conversations and all of, I guess, all of the, the other facets that we acknowledge as part of diversity and inclusion, being able to express yourself and being able to advocate for yourself and any group that maybe you are you are looking to support and champion or move into the conversation on, actually being able to communicate clearly and authoritatively and articulately is so important. So what happens with neurodiversity when actually part and parcel of that is viewing the world slightly differently and speaking about the world and ourselves slightly differently. So when you don't necessarily play into the agreed collective narrative and you don't necessarily use language in the same way, how then do you vouch for yourself and advocate for yourself? Mm, and I really like your point on different thinking and it plays into so many like very open, honest and brave interviews that I've had with individuals recently. Um, one particular very memorable conversation I had with a chap who had um, ADHD and he said to me, people are scared of people who think differently. You only have to look at religion and war to understand that people don't like different thinkers. And I have always and will always be an outsider because I think differently. And he just acknowledged it, faced into it and sort of embraced that persona actually but i think thinking differently is a it's a really healthy way of looking at neurodivergence because it's just about different minds and when you get the right minds in the room and make sure that they are all different i mean we've done quite a few pictures this week actually and we've just been talking about how important it is not to have everybody play the same role in those pictures and have different voices and different minds and different thinkers. I think it's massively important. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about, we very often think, sadly, in kind of cliches and stereotypes when it comes to neurodiversity. And very often, like in the mass media, you know, disability in general is portrayed as something that we need to fix. And I'm wondering um, how you think we could help change this mindset in people if we embrace this different thinking tone. I think that's really interesting, especially when you start from why is the majority view, why is the stereotyped view what it is? And I think, Hester, another thing that you've taught me is about later diagnosis of autism and ADHD in women, for example, because all of the scientific studies originally were done on men and more than likely they were done on white men. So also for people of color who are autistic or neurodivergent, they've gone for many, many years without that support. They face even worse stigma. So I think there's a compound issue here that being different from the majority is difficult in the first place. When you combine that with other dimensions of diversity, it becomes even greater and, and even more of a struggle. But actually what you're saying here, Elle, is that there isn't a problem. There isn't a, a, a barrier to fix necessarily. It's the lack of acceptance or the lack of understanding from the majority that causes the problem. Mm. And that's the same with disability. Disability is only disabling because our worlds are only geared for people who are fully able-bodied. Mm. And as soon as you introduce things like ramps and lifts into buildings and um, braille signs and other accommodations, then you're no longer disabled necessarily because your environment is more welcoming to you. So I think neurodiversity, personally, 
I don't think it is a disability necessarily. Any disabling effect of neurodiversity is only through the lack of understanding and lack of accommodation Mm. from the people around you. And sometimes that can be solved if you're brave enough and feel safe enough yourself. So I saw a brilliant example that Kate tagged me in on LinkedIn today where um, somebody had held a presentation, said they were autistic, said that they would really struggle to answer audience questions because it would make them um, forget the key points of their own pitch. And so they actually said it would take their mind to other places and they put cute little ideas on their on their presentation document about where it might take their mind to, which just engaged the audience, but really was a way of kind of outing themselves in the room early. And like, if you've got the bravery to do that, amazing. And actually it really warms the audience up too. Hester, any thoughts on this? I think within neurodiversity, one of the really useful ways for me personally to think about it and speak about it is high needs versus low needs. So it is a huge, I would say probably unending spectrum. And actually when we talk about things like being autistic, it is a complete binary. So you are either by definition autistic or allistic. So you are either what societies deem normal or you're not. And that is what autistic means. So there aren't actually, we, we have then lumped different kind of behaviours and characteristics into that. But essentially it just means either you're the same or you're different. And within that, obviously, huge, huge group of people there are people who really really find it difficult to perform the tasks that within a traditional or modern workplace they need to be able to do but then there are also innumerable amounts of people who actually have what we term low needs so they can get along probably pretty well without anybody noticing that there's anything maybe different or there aren't maybe any accommodations or there's some support that they would benefit from that Mm -hmm. actually viewing neurodiversity purely as a lack and purely as something that means people cannot do what they may need to do in a workplace or cannot cannot function productively in society it is really limiting and I think as I say thinking about it around the support requirements and how it shows up and how it plays out within traditional structures is a really useful way to view it. So I guess then, thinking about what you've just been talking about with employers, what what considerations should people have for neurodivergence in a post-pandemic workplace? I think, well, broadly and specifically here, I think it comes down to not necessarily just thinking of ways to accommodate thinking differently, but actually thinking more. It plays so much into the assumptions that we make around how people should behave and what we expect from people. And I guess jumping to the obvious conclusions because we're all time poor and it's easy. It's much easier to be able to predict behaviour and feel like you do X, Y, and Z, and that will make people feel X, Y, and Z. But taking a bit of extra time to actually expect, not just be able to deal with, but actually expect and plan for a difference in response and a difference in needs and a difference in behaviours and characteristics and abilities means that you are better equipped. And line managers 
really come into play here, like because this is supposedly their heartland. You know, they 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 kind of really have to think about the people who are working for them and how they can help make the best world of work for them and help listen to them and understand more. I mean, Russ, have you got any thoughts on what else employers should do? So for me, it's really interesting here because when you start to look at the things that benefit in particularly neurodivergent people, setting clear parameters, being crystal clear with your instructions, defining a brief, helping those people understand what great looks like, regular check-ins and support and being available for advice and questions. Those are things that everyone benefits from, <laughs> you know? And, and actually so much of the world of work is pace, 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 delivery, growth, aggressive targets, delivery, execution, execution, execution. And an awful lot of this is just creating the headspace and the time and the permission mm. for people to get to the same end outcome or even a better end outcome, but in a slower way mm. or in a way that's better for them. Mm. And so a huge part of this is around giving people the permission and the space to work in the way that's best for them. And how many times have we heard the phrase like slow down to speed up? Mm. And that is that is embracing diversity of thought. That is carving the time and the space out in your organization to allow people to be at their absolute best mm. and not just be laser focused on delivery 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 because that's precisely what's going to exclude anyone who doesn't fit into that highly capitalistic growth orientated mindset mm. and i think sometimes in the corporate world as well there can be such ambiguity and politics at play in meetings which actually can be hard for anybody to read. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And like I said, a, a set of clear instructions, checking processes along the way and celebrating a good job well done at the end. Who wouldn't benefit from that? <laughs> Absolutely. I think as well, if you're on board as a business with ideas around fail fast and test and learn, it's about really living those ideas because what better an opportunity to really surface the amazing power, the amazing skill, the amazing creativity, the amazing wisdom, the amazing originality of people who think differently than when actually you give things space to breathe and you let things fail and you let new ideas come to the table. You give people space to put themselves forward and put their ideas forward without feeling like it has to be Bob on every time and it can be different. Hester, do you mind if I ask a question about... Um the flip to virtual working. Did you notice any benefits for yourself or any downsides from virtual working? What, what, what was the impact for you as an individual when that change happened as a result of the pandemic? When we first went into the very first lockdown, I found it hugely difficult because I am a creature of habit and I love a routine. And I also really, really thrive when I'm around other people. There's something about being in a designated space, being around other people who are focusing on tasks that really allows me to sit down and focus as well. And actually, there's, um, there's a really interesting concept within the neurodivergent community around task buddies. So actually, it's pretty well acknowledged that people can work a lot better when they're just in the company of somebody else who's doing the same thing. And going from having a set place to go every day, being able to channel my brain when I got there, check out at the end of the day and be around people who would kind of pull me along and keep me going, keep me motivating 
it was such a huge shock and sent me spiraling a little but the less we talk about that the better um <laughs> and it's been it's been a huge adjustment i think as as is the same for every single person i think there have been major positives to the move to hybrid but there have also been downsides so i really value having my own space and being able to make plenty of time for fresh air also i can get quite overstimulated and overwhelmed if I spend loads and loads of time around people, um, you know, in big open spaces with lots of noise, lots of chatter. So being able to be at home for part of the time is really great as a, as a way to, to restore and recharge from that. But then at the same time, it can make then going back into those environments more difficult, as I did, as many of us did, got used to the safety of my own home and I think I guess I guess I think the thing is it doesn't feel like any of this stuff necessarily is separate to the collective experience it feels like this is something that everyone can relate to I think as you've both made the point on it's it's about how can people feel comfortable to express that in their own way and really advocate for their own needs and as we have moved into hybrid and things kind of have continued to seesaw and people aren't sure quite where the dust is going to settle. I think it's about really honestly, truly allowing people to share what they need and what works for them. But until people feel like they can acknowledge and interrogate their own needs because it's a viable option, until people feel like there's that space for them, there's never going to be enough of that conversation. I think that's really interesting as well, Hester, especially working in our environment where you've got writers, designers, project managers, consultants. We're already a collection of very different brains. And I've been here eight years now. And with our team of 10, 12 designers, I've got a different way of working with every single one of them because I've got to know how their brains work best. And there's one who I'll brief two days in advance because they do their thinking while they're walking or they're in the shower. There's one who I will always sit next to and draw with and because they're a very visual thinker and they're there in the moment. Now that's because, you know, I've done a lot of diversity and inclusion work and I'm used to flexing my style to suit the needs of others. But none of those people have ever sat down and told me how they get the best out of themselves, if you see what I mean. That's a, that's a process of kind of trial and error that I've discovered with them. But I think that self-realization of going, what is it that I need to be at my absolute best? And how do I articulate that to others? is again something that everyone would benefit from. What is my learning style? What is my instructional style? What support do I need? How often do I need check-ins and reassurance? If you can own that and communicate that with the people that you're working with, whether you're neurodivergent or not, again, I believe you would benefit. I think so yeah. too. And I, I also think that when people do that, not only do they feel better, do people around them feel better, their career takes off mm -hmm. because they have the chance to be at their best because everybody's open to them just being themselves. And a couple of things on that. I think, yes, that self-awareness is crucial. And in an ideal world, everybody would possess that. The, the reality is that it's something that needs coaxing. And 
with I think with lots and lots of people, it's something they need permission. They need permission and they need prompting. And that is a really tangible action and strategy there for IC teams and wider people process functions. How can you help people understand that process of self-awareness and learning and asking yourself the right questions? And then what as a business and as an individual can you do with that information to make your working life better and to help you thrive? Ooh, a tangible action for the IC team. I think that's a good place to stop. Take that, people. Listen to it, enjoy it, learn from it. And thank you both for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Elle. Lovely to talk, as always. Let's talk about neurodiversity. Diversity of perspective, different ways of thinking, different ideas and different approaches are what empowers Deloitte to deliver the best solution for our clients. If you're interested in what Deloitte is doing for our neurodiverse colleagues, let me know and let's have a chat. This is the empowering rallying cry in Anthony Friel's email signature and it perfectly encapsulates his passion for inclusion. I sat down with Anthony to explore how organisations can best nurture neurodiversity. Anthony, welcome to the World Changes podcast. Thanks for joining me. I'm very happy to be here. So you're on the co-production board of Neurodiversity in Business. I mean, tell us a little bit about that forum and what it means to you. Absolutely. Neurodiversity in Business, incidentally, I do not know where we'll be by the time this goes out. So it's, a, it's going to be a new national charity. We're in the process of spinning it up right now. We have had quite a positive response. So Deloitte are a member. Uh, it's obviously, it's, as I mentioned to you before, it's separate from Deloitte, but so are all of the other big four consulting firms and as are a number of some of the largest employers in this country. And it is about, obviously, self-explanatory in your adversity business, it's about supporting them and how they do ND inclusion right. But the thing about it is, and especially my role, is that we are kind of at a tipping point. Uh, you know, I don't know if you will have noticed this yourself, but it, we have been, I certainly personally have been talking about neurodiversity for a long time. And it's just in the past year that all of a sudden, all of the businesses in this country are have turning around and saying, no, we need to talk about it. How do we do it? What does it mean to us and how do we do ND inclusion? And this has kind of happened all at once. I think that a big part of that is because of things like what are in my email signature, right? The co-production board, co-production incidentally, if you don't know what that means, it's actually a concept from social policy. So in social policy making, Someone dreamt up this idea that, no, if you're, especially in the UK, where we bring a lot of things down to the local authority level, if you're trying to develop public services, you should view the people who are going to be beneficiaries of them as partners in developing them. So we've always done consultation. We've always done, okay, you know, reaching out and doing surveys and asking and, and doing modelling. But no, let's actually elevate the people who will be involved in using these services into part, full partners in developing them. The thing is, it's been a hard fight for a long time to be able to allow neurodivergent people to own the conversation around NDD&I, especially in corporate settings. But that is the thing that kind of has broken down a lot of the walls. You know, as we start giving people the opportunity to own their own narrative, that gives them the opportunity to actually correct a lot of well-meaning assumptions, not just discriminatory ones, but well-meaning ones around what they can and can't do. And so that means now there is a big business driver, largely of the fact that 
there's pressure, but also there's an understanding now that it doesn't need to be hard, that it, it can open up access to talent pools that would be a significant advantage in many settings. And because that has been such a big driver on the change, the co-production board is actually at the top of NIB's kind of governance structure. So it's a panel of all ND activists and self-advocates who sit and review over the charity's policy making, which we feel is also a really strong assurance we can offer to our members in the charity. The big corporations have signed up to say, okay, can you take us by the hand and show us how to do this? That they won't do it the wrong way. They won't do inclusion in name, but not in spirit. I mean, I've, I've worked with organisations that have maybe done autism hiring programmes or a big pilot for a lot of organisations that have been very effective and got a lot of people in a lot of good jobs, but lead to a narrative that, okay, autistic people are coders and should be put in a coding box and isn't actually very empowering and a bit otherizing. And we can offer an assurance through the co-production board that NIB will avoid having that bent around what our members do. Do you know, I'm sitting here, Anthony, and I'm really feeling you. And it's especially like, I'm actually looking at you and thinking, well, how do you identify? Is it as is it as an ally? Is it as an activist? Like, what? Where is this kind of fire come from within you to help neurodivergent people? Well, so this is the thing. I, I you know, I am neurodivergent myself. I have ADHD and autism, but the fire for me is, and you, you know, you asked, am I an ally? Am I an activist? I am just someone who's been opened to the revelation, right? I Because the great thing about the word neurodiversity is it includes everyone. You know, neurodiversity is the whole of humankind. That's, that's ever, and it's, it's recognising the differences between how we think and communicate and express ourselves and experience things are all fundamentally equal and valid. So that little signature on my email, where that came from is... I, I really wanted to be able to talk to people at Deloitte about this. If someone emailed me, especially if I had to work with someone, maybe my senior, I wanted an obvious way into having that discussion with them. And I turned around one day and I thought, well, no, actually, neurodiversity is what we do. It's what we've always done in consulting any consulting firm usually sells itself to its clients on the basis of, no, we'll have a team of people who everyone's got a different idea, they've got a different way of looking at things, and we'll find the solution. That, that's, that's neurodiversity in action. And by accident, a lot of cases, we, for a long time, have had a condition where we create different kinds of different. So we go, okay, this team, we've got visual learners and we've got audio and practical learners. We've got people who think like this and people who think like that. But Anthony over there, he's got ADHD. So we're all different, but that's a different kind of different when we are all on board with the fact that difference is the advantage. Difference of perspective is the problem solver. And people didn't necessarily feel comfortable saying, well, no, autism, ADHD, dyslexia, things that again, well-meaningly, people might understand his disabilities represent a difference in perspective that can be valuable. Uh, people didn't feel comfortable saying, you're dyslexic, you probably have a different take on this. But now we are starting to break down those walls because of this, this revelation, which is no neurodiversity, it's all of us. And so I just find that personally very energising, not even with respect to myself or my experience or the, the people I'm trying to make a difference for, I think that is something that can be a changing revelation for everyone. And so I'm just energised by it. And that's 
how when when it clicked for me, I said, no, I need to, this is something that's a thing for me. This this is a driver for me now in how I approach everything. I, I mean, I'm sitting here really energised by you and your voice on this. And it's, uh, I, gosh, you're an absolute tour de force. And I really, really hope that you can you can drive some more change with this, particularly in, in your role on the board. I mean, you're right that the conversation has changed. Is it from allyship? Is it from activism? Is it from businesses waking up and smelling the coffee? What do you think it's come from? It's a little bit of everything. You know, everyone has a theory about what the main driver is. Like I said, we, we kind of are at a tipping point where a lot of people have been banging the drum for a long time. And all of a sudden, one day we woke up and every big employer on the country wants to know how they do this. You know, there are a few drivers that we know are the case in specific sectors. For example, in consulting, we now know that there are some skill sets that neurodivergents are overrepresented in and they are competitive skill sets. Coding is an example I used. We don't want to create a condition where people think, no, autistic people are great coders, go and find an autistic person to do this. But we know that autism comes with an overrepresentation of skills. So it's a diagnosis is a statistical statement, ultimately more likely to struggle with this, more likely to you know be stronger at this. And if you are working in a technology sector, there is competition for talent and enough companies were waking up to this that autistic people could turn around and say, no, I, I can choose where I want to work. I can choose where I take this talent I have and I'm not going to go somewhere where I wouldn't feel included and valued. And so that for a lot of sectors, we know was a tipping point. It's motivation by access to talent. But the other thing is, for a long time, especially the past couple of years, a lot of organisations are under pressure across all areas of DNI. You know, after the explosion of Black Lives Matter, that came to the fore for a lot of organisations quite rightly. And behind that came a re-examination of how they approach a lot of other issues in diversity and inclusion. And as they've reopened some of these topics that some organisations potentially went, well, no, we've done something, we've got a programme, we've got reporting, of, we've got a, a potentially a mixed board, we can close it down. They've opened it, they've re-examined it. And a lot of the principles that come from this revelation of neurodiversity are now entering their minds from other parts of DNI, and that potentially opens them up to the conversation. Because I think, for me, neurodiversity strikes at the heart of all diversity and inclusion, because one of the things that we do on the co-production board is we try to represent as many different neurodivergent experiences as possible. So not just different conditions, but people who come from different ethnic backgrounds, people who belong to different sexual identities, who identify as minority genders, or people from basically any group that could potentially be viewed as an outgroup. If they are also neurodivergent, they will have a specifically conspicuous different experience that is shaped by sitting at that intersection and we want to represent that. And what that comes down to is if you are from an ethnicity that's a minority where you live, or you belong to a specifically marginalised sexual identity or gender identity where you live, then the reality is you have an experience and you have a perspective that is not welcome. And neurodiversity really is all about, you no know, every perspective, every experience, everything that comes from those set of adaptive choices that made the person who we are, including the things that were out of our control, those create a person 
who has a contribution that is equally valid. And everything, every single way we can be different is something that has value. So that is a principle I think comes from neurodiversity. But as DNI in general becomes more mature, that's becoming embedded across every area of inclusion. And that opens up the room for what was previously a bit of an odd child in the DNI agenda and neurodiversity. No, I, I love that intersectional approach. And, and what are people saying to you about that approach? Do you feel like it's the right one now you've got the people together in the room? It's very difficult, right? I mean, you asked if I think it's the right one. I think it's the right one. Absolutely, I think it's the right one. But there are a lot of questions around, you know, how do we do that? It is an approach that's still in its infancy. Neurodiversity is a recent revelation. The word only came on the scene in the past 30 years, I think. So when we look at intersectionality, there is a lot of pressure to focus on things that there are metrics for, right? So we know that ADHD is underdiagnosed in people of colour. We know that autism is underdiagnosed in people of colour. We know that, for example, in education, I mean, if you have an idea of what ADHD can look like in children, in a lot of educational settings, To put it bluntly, a white child that has some of those issues, that might raise questions that might lead to support. But in some places, if it's a child who comes from an ethnic minority background, well, depending on the teacher, they might be branded as a bad child. And, you know, that starts a process that then pushes them off, you know, their development. They can be excluded, which will set them back. And and so there's a lot of questions around how do we account for those things? How do we account for things that have metrics when it comes to intersectionality. But the co-production board, what our point was, is to make sure that we do inclusion in spirit, not just in name, so that we reflect what people are feeling, what they're experiencing, so we don't bring in measures that actually do move the needle, that get people included, that bring up equity, that bring up, you know, that see representation on boards, that see equal access to opportunities, but don't actually create narratives that are otherizing because they don't take into account the actual experiences of what it's like to be, first of all, neurodivergent, but to sit at these, you know, intersections. And so the pressure is to go back to looking at metrics. We we almost won that fight with saying, no, you need you need to think about actually how you do this right, how you do real inclusion is more than moving the needle. And then we've opened up these discussions that weren't had for a long time. And there's pressure to go back to looking at metrics, what moves the needle, and there should be, because there are like big, big groups of people that are just permanently, structurally excluded from access to things that, access to diagnosis, but in the education example, well, just pushed off of the path to enjoying a good life. And so how you balance that is something we are still wrestling with which is we want to say, no, you need to go out and do these things. Here are a list of things you should change, a list of measures. But the main mission has to be creating connection and understanding. Because neurodiversity includes everyone, that means I have an opportunity as someone with ADHD to say, okay, actually, I'm on a continuum with you. Like, I am different in in the same way you can be different from someone else just because mine has a label. How do we keep our approach moving along in a way that is all about creating those connections and creating understanding because that I think will be the motivation for the things that will really change things. So it so it is a conflict, but I I think we are taking the right approach, which is putting the people who are the authorities in these experiences 
the people with these experiences at the forefront of talking about them. And Anthony, I mean, we haven't met before and I don't work with Deloitte. So do tell me, do draw the line back for me to how you're kind of pushing this with the firm. Now you've got that experience externally working on that board. What's Deloitte actually doing about neurodivergence now you're kind of championing it in such a a public spectrum? So this is the thing. I think, and it, it, it was a hard one thing, it has been a long journey and a long discussion, but I think the approach of just talking to people, especially senior people, along the lines of what's in my email signature, which, you know, I put that there with a view that maybe someone will respond and say, let's have a chat about this, and that's what happened. People have very much embedded this idea that no neurodiversity is Deloitte. That, that it, you know, I did not, there are a lot of organisations where I have colleagues in the charity where they've had some really difficult fights around bringing in a transformation programme, bringing in adjustments. But I was able to kind of win that discussion, which is I've been able to convince people that neurodiversity is kind of what makes Deloitte an effective consulting firm. You know, we, I, I can't go into obviously too much detail about conditions at Deloitte, but compared to other consulting firms, we have always been a, a touch more agile. So, you know, we've always been quite flexible. And for example, working from home, when you work, the first day I joined, I was told, you're a consultant, you're targeted on your outputs, not hours in front of the desk. I need 40 hours of work this week. When you do them, how many hours it takes you, that's on you. And, you know, COVID-19 obviously moved a lot of this up the agenda as well, because Deloitte looked to lean in to the flexibility that is always set us apart from our competitors. And so, you know, that meant that I could say to leaders in this firm is this does not need to be hard for us. We know that this is an approach that has been our strength historically. We know that not really leaning into it and banging the drum about what we already believe could potentially stop us accessing the most talented people to do the job that we do. And we know that it doesn't need to be hard for us because we're already ahead of the game. You know, we are flexible. We do encourage our people to say what they need to be their best and give it to them. So once I had that discussion, I think Deloitte realised that they should be out and banging the drum for neurodiversity because it is an opportunity for them to say, not to be crass about it, they were right all along. Deloitte, like any firm of its size, has a people agenda and how we differentiated our people agenda was through this, this flexibility, agile work, respecting people to own their own narratives. And that's what neurodiversity is all about, which is the new big area of DNI. So Deloitte should be leading, not following on that topic. And that is something we've had support from, from the top of the firm. It's been integrated into our people agenda. We talk about it a lot. We will soon be releasing some materials around what we've done internally and what we think other organisations should do themselves, which is an unusual thing to do. Uh, and I don't think any other part of our DNI agenda would we say, we've done this and we want other companies to do that. But that's some of the approach we're talking about taking and what we talk about externally around what we've done. And I'm really pleased that I you know, first of all, being able to have those conversations, but also that I was able to win that argument because there is always the possibility that no one would have clicked on. 
you know, most of the problems I see when I look at other organisations are well-meaning discrimination, trying to do the right thing, not wanting to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. You know, we could have went on without anyone ever realising, no, actually, neurodiversity is what we do. We are a neurodiversity business. Not that Deloitte would necessarily describe themselves in such extreme terms, but that was always my view on it. And I think... I think it resonates with people who maybe didn't know what neurodiversity was five minutes before I spoke to them. This is very bold. I'm looking forward to seeing what you come out with later on this year. I think a last question from me on like HR and internal comms professionals, right? They, they're they kind of the levers that are going to help you with this message. What's really important? What are you hoping to see from them? So this is very, very difficult because I, you know, and, and, and this links back to what you'll see from Delight this year. I... I can only really speak in a personal capacity, right? I can't speak on behalf of Deloitte. I have a temperature feel. You know, I dip my toe in and I feel like this is the way this has gone. I feel like from talking to people, I've got traction. And I have a feeling that what Deloitte does will look like what I just told you. And in NIB, our corporate members, we've brought them on board. They're very enthusiastic. Some of them, you know, sought us out. A team of three people, we didn't have a website, we didn't have anything, and all of a sudden we're speaking to the head of diversity and inclusion at Santander or at uh, EY. It, it was very, very encouraging to see how seriously they take it, but sometimes the feeling I get is they understand that it's important. HR departments, heads of DNI understand that they've got to a point where either they need to do something now or potentially that they should have done something before, but they don't necessarily know how to do it right. There is always so much apprehension around doing DNI wrong to the point where I know in some companies it does stop them doing anything. A lot of organizations feel like they can't not do anything anymore, but it's such an immature space that people are worried about not doing it wrong. And you know, the only way I can see to fix that, and certainly that's what we're trying to do at NIB, is to explain that it doesn't need to be hard. You don't need to be afraid of doing the wrong thing. You only need to let people own their own narratives. As HR professionals, HR departments, stop trying to build structures around, okay, neurodiversity equals these conditions, these conditions match to these profiles. No, like create some flexibility for your people, all of your people to say, this is what I need to be my best. And you will find amazing traction in doing ND inclusion right. Because fundamentally, even if you do adjustments and you make interventions that move the needle and change metrics, the thing that actually makes people feel valued and included and equal is being given that opportunity to say on equal footing, no, this is what I need don't worry about my diagnosis. That's a label for my doctor, not for you. I'm telling you what I need to do my best. And really, we should be doing that for everyone. We should be doing that for all of our colleagues, everywhere we work. And potentially, I, you know, I'm somewhat reserved in this, but what I would like to see happen is that neurodiversity moves that forward. So outside of people affected by neurodiversity, organisations start saying to their people, what are your individual circumstances and what do we need to give you so that you can be the most effective for us? And, you know, COVID-19 has really pushed that up a lot of organisations' agendas, especially with working remotely and potentially people having to flex their hours uh, because people have all different circumstances. You know, what that conversation looks like, it could be someone that is caring for a member of the family that's ill 
or it could be someone who has young children. So they need to start after the school run. And fundamentally, how mental would it be if you like passed up on some really, really, really important talent? If you potentially lost someone who would be an extraordinary value to your organization because you didn't want to let them start 15 minutes after the school run, especially if they have a role that doesn't really require it. You know, one of the, the most revelatory things, I, I keep using that word because so much of it is a revelation, is someone said to me, I spoke to an education professional, someone who does research in Indian education, and they said to me, well, I, I was in a call with myself and a colleague of mine from another consulting firm, so not a colleague, an acquaintance, and they said to us, you know, lots of people, lots of children are pushed off of the path to a really fulfilling life quite early because perhaps they're not diagnosed as autistic or have ADHD and they don't want to wear a school time. And teacher doesn't know how to deal with that, doesn't know why they react badly and maybe they get in trouble and that starts a whole process. And when we ask teachers why they press that, what they tell us is, well, maybe we need to teach children to wear ties, maybe they'll have high performing jobs one day. And myself and my consulting colleague looked, looked at each other not having seen a tie in a couple of years, <laughs> just with bewilderment. And, you know, fundamentally, Deloitte, I'm a consultant, but Deloitte's also an accounting firm. One of the reasons we have offices is because once upon a time, accountants had to be close to paper ledgers physically. They don't anymore. So why did it take COVID-19 for some organisations to loosen up on working remotely? And a lot of the things that would come out of those conversations around what do you need to be the most effective for us are things that there were no reason to not be giving people before. If you don't have a meeting at 9am, why can't you start after the school run? Mm. And I, I truly believe your your point on kind of owning a narrative, you know, hopefully with internal communicators there, you're pushing on an open door because it's all we want people to do, right? <laughs> um, so I think you're such an inspiration to talk to, Anthony. I really appreciate your time. Last question from me. Thinking about the people making the biggest impact on the world of work right now, who would you nominate as your 2022 world changer? I was vaguely aware you were going to ask that question. And <laughs> I have been thinking on it. I find it very difficult. But I think I will actually potentially go somewhat off script here. I think I'll say something you wouldn't expect. Which Ooh, is let's. I just recently, just in the past couple of weeks met a gentleman named Simon Minton. He was a friend of a friend, which is how I got introduced to him. And I actually found out then that he used to work at Deloitte and doesn't anymore. And the entire time we both worked at Deloitte, I never met him. And then one day I beat him randomly. But he now works at an organisation called Persephone. What Persephone do, and what I think Simon Minton, I believe he's actually going to be leading on part of this for them in the UK, they help organisations understand I'm trying to think that I don't want to, you know, say something that Persephone would disagree with because obviously I can't represent them. But Persephone, as I understand it, effectively help organisations understand where they sit in the carbon ecosystem. So, you know, they can help organisations understand what their carbon footprint is. But, you know, lots of people do that. Lots of consulting firms come in and tell organisations, this is your carbon footprint. But what Persephone can do, which I've not seen anyone else doing, and they were not that long ago a startup, is they can say to organisations, they have clever tools and clever data, let's assume this happens. Let's assume two degrees of climate change happens. This is what your company will look like in five years, 10 years, if you 
keep using the approach you're using now. And the reason I find that inspirational, the reason I think that will change everything is I don't like trying to win climate change conversations with people, just like I don't like trying to win diversity and inclusion conversations with people. So instead I say, no, your diversity is what we're all about. I think if you say to organisations, especially big organisations that have the power to really move the needle, you know, sustainability is about sustainable business. It's about being continuing to be a business that's effective and makes money for the long term. Then we can start actually pushing a lot of stuff towards a green net zero path. If you say to an organisation that's worth potentially $2 billion that if you keep on this current trajectory and we know what that looks like then if 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees or 3 degrees of warming happen this is how much money you're going to lose you know it's a bit cynical but fundamentally it means they are more open to having the conversation about well actually what do we do about that what do we change how do we change our trajectory and that's how you open conversations about well no how do we do business differently how do we build a sustainable world. We will make our company sustainable to do that. We need to make XYZ sustainable. So we need to rethink everything. And, you know, I don't like sounding cynical. I do think I come across as cynical sometimes because I say, these conversations are too hard. I'm going to try and end around. But I, I don't think it's cynicism. I think most people care about these things. I think most people care about DNI. I would even say most companies care about climate change. But fundamentally, what I want to do is try and connect to people on a mental level, like to try and put things in a way that will go click. They know exactly what I'm talking about because I've put it the way they would assemble it. And, you know, I think that's been very powerful in ND, in neurodiversity. I think it's something that could really change the way we talk about climate change and could actually help us make a difference. And so when I looked up Persephone after I met Simon, he said, oh, I'm working at Persephone, went home, Googled them, and I seen that this is the approach they're taking. I was immediately like, this is the thing that can actually make a difference because I find these conversations hard, but I feel like if I'd done this, they would be easier. So Simon Minton is my nominated 2022 world changer because fundamentally, I, I think that that will be a thing that a few years from now, if we speak again, will have really, really, really been make or break for where we are. And I don't know exactly what Simon's doing at Persephone, but I think I understand what Persephone are doing. So I'm happy to give my new friend a shout out. Nice. Oh, Simon Minton, you are a needle mover. You are a 2022 world changer and Anthony Friel makes it so. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anthony, for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation and uh, wish you a beautiful day. You too. Have an amazing day. It was wonderful speaking to you. huge thanks to Anthony Friel. If you want to explore how to support and champion neurodiversity in your organisation, do join us later this month for our webinar, where you can put your questions to our expert panel. We'll share the details in the session notes and on our social channels. Want to continue the conversation in the meantime? Do come and chat to us over on Twitter at Scarlet Abbott or drop us an email at hello at scarletabbott.co.uk. We'll see you next time for another dive into World Changers 2022. World Changers is a podcast by employee engagement consultancy Scarlett Abbott, hosted by L. Bradley Cox. Find out more at scarlettabbott.co.uk. Thank you.